Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The VA's Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, set up in the aftermath of the department's secret waitlist scandal, got off to a very rocky start. It had scandals of its own. According to the Government Watchdog Project on Government Oversight, VA has reformed OAWP in ways that have made real progress toward building whistleblower confidence, but there's still a whole lot of work to do. Joel Spielberger is policy counsel at POGO. He testified before the House Veterans Affairs Committee about what's needed a few weeks ago, and he's with us now to continue that conversation. Joe, thanks for talking to us today, and and I think the place I'd like to begin is, I, I thought you made a pretty compelling case in your testimony that really the issues at OAWP are structural. And no matter how good the leadership is, how ethical it is, you're always going to have these structural problems. Take us through what you think those are. Absolutely. So as you know, OAWP was established in 2017. And it's important to note that a big impetus for creating this office was the 2014 waitlist scandal where whistleblowers played such a critical role in exposing neglect and abuse that an IG report um, attributed to the deaths of at least 40 veterans in the Phoenix VA healthcare system itself. And so I think it's important uh, to understand that, you know, within the context of this issue, we're really talking about the VA's ability to provide veterans with the highest standard of care. And so going back to when the office was first established, POGO and other whistleblower organizations expressed great concerns about the lack of independence, about housing a central whistleblower office within the agency. We felt that it would not, without that lack of independence, it would not be able to provide the level of accountability that was and still is so sorely needed. So OEWP has this really important role and mandate to investigate allegations of whistleblower retaliation by VA supervisors and allegations of misconduct and poor performance. And unfortunately, over the past six years or so, we've seen just a colossal failure to protect whistleblowers and to hold senior leaders accountable. And so the two main structural deficiencies that we've identified are, one, OEWP lacks its own independent in-house legal counsel. So that means that historically it's had to rely on the Office of General Counsel. Of course, this is a basic conflict of interest because although both the Office of General Counsel and OAWP are housed within the agency, they have very different missions. The Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, of course, is tasked with conducting objective, fact-based investigations, while the Office of General Counsel's primary role is to protect the interests of its client, which is the VA, and that can include limiting its legal liability, for instance. Now, we have heard that recently uh, the VA has changed some of the Office of General Counsel's role in this process. For instance, we've heard that OGC no longer weighs in during the investigation phase. Assuming that that's accurate, that would be a big improvement in practice. The other main structural issue is that OEWP lacks the ability to enforce its recommendations. And so all that they can do is make recommendations for the VA to discipline senior officials and hold them accountable. And we've seen, again, over the past few years, the VA's inability or lack of interest in actually holding its senior leaders accountable. So 
Uh, for example, in the 2021 uh, House Veterans Affairs Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee hearing on this issue, then ranking member Chris Pappas reported that uh, that year OEWP had made 15 recommendations for discipline against senior officials specifically who engaged in whistleblower retaliation, but the VA only fully implemented one of those recommendations. The GAO has also reported on some of these cases where discipline that comes from OAWP has been you know, pretty strong and substantive, but the VA, oftentimes relying on OGC's advice, severely mitigates that discipline to where it is just basically a slap on the wrist. And so those are the two structural reforms that we think that the office really needs because historically it has not produced the results that we actually want to see. Um, back on the OGC issue, you know, even if we take them perfectly at their word that there has been some internal reorganization and restructuring that that makes it more independent in practice, I think there's an argument that that almost doesn't matter because so much of this is a perception issue. If you want whistleblowers to feel comfortable coming forward, it has to really look like an independent organization. So if people think that there is a conflict with OGC, that's almost the whole ballgame, isn't it? Absolutely. And this has been another key part of this. You know, POGO has done investigative reporting on the VA and on OEWP since its establishment. And again, going back to the 2014 waitlist scandal, POGO partnered with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans for America, for instance, and basically um, operated a hotline for people to submit anonymous complaints and their experiences. And in just over a month, our organizations heard from more than 800 different people across the country. And a big part of that was not just reporting instances of medical neglect and substandard levels of care, but specifically about this culture of fear and retaliation that existed within the agency at large. And so you're absolutely right that if there's a lack of trust in the agency and especially among offices and leaders who are tasked with protecting whistleblowers, of course, you know, that just creates and exacerbates this chilling effect that really prevents people from coming forward and making the disclosures that we know are so instrumental. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think that decision to rely on OGC is a choice, right? I mean, that's that's not something that's in statute. Maybe it's a funding constraint or something. Do we know anything about why they've continued to rely on the, the department's own general counsel? It is a choice. It's, it's, yeah, nothing is mandated by law. It's just been this internal practice. Over the past couple of years, OAWP has started hiring its own attorneys within that office. Of course, the VA can also rely on attorneys with the inspector general's office, but that's, that's historically been the practice. And another point you make in your testimony is that, you know, again, even if the current administration is doing things better than in the, the earlier days, anything can be undone. Whatever progress that has been made can be undone very, very quickly in the future. So what does Congress need to do to solidify whatever good things have happened in recent years? Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, we really appreciate Congress's continued focus on this issue, but respectfully, it's time to stop talking and to actually act. You know, we've seen the historical failures um, that have existed for such a long period of time. I feel like 
every day there's a new scandal coming out of the VA or, in, or one of its facilities across the country. And, and we go back to these fundamental structural reforms that OAWP needs. So what we are calling on Congress to do is to return to legislation that passed the House last Congress. It was a bipartisan bill sponsored by then subcommittee chairman and ranking members Chris Pappas and Tracy Mann. It was very uncontroversial, passed the House under suspension of the rules, and it would have, among other things, provided OAWP with its own independent legal counsel, and also it would have shifted investigative authority from OAWP to the Office of, of Special Counsel that has decades of experience conducting these types of investigations. On the trust issue that you mentioned earlier, I, I, I almost wonder if the reputation of this office isn't just fatally tainted and it needs to just be replaced with something with a different name? Is, is, is that something to consider? You know, start over with, with a new independent accountability organization within the department? I think if we don't see the results that we need to see, that's worth considering. I don't think that we're at that point yet. I think we are hopefully optimistic about new leadership within OAWP and some of these internal improvements that we've seen the office made. Again, we want to make sure that any improvements are codified so that they can't be undone. And we think that these two key reforms, establishing an independent legal counsel and shifting investigative authority would go a long way to getting the results that we want to see. So I think we're still hoping that there will be improvements, but if these reforms are made and we're still having the same conversation and whistleblowers and employees are not being protected, then I think, yes, we would definitely consider that conversation. Joe Spielberger is policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. You can hear this conversation anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.